Hi, I'm Kim Chung, and you're listening to Thursmag Over a Drink podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Andreas Koenig, the general manager of Werner's Group, which operates a group of restaurants and bars in Changkat Bukibintang. Anyone who comes to Kuala Lumpur would be recommended to visit Changkat Bukibintang, a can't-miss stretch of restaurants and bars in the city centre for some of the best food and entertainment. It is here that Werner Kuhn, a chef with a brilliant business mind, began his F&B group from the success story of El Cerdo, a nose-to-tell Spanish restaurant. Over the past 15 years, Werner's group has run numerous outlets that define the very essence of the F&B scene in that neighbourhood. Andreas will be helping us to understand the story behind the group and how they have managed their outlets during the pandemic. Hello, thank you for talking to me this morning, Andreas. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on your show. I want to know, it has been a third lockdown and finally you're allowed to start dining in. So how's business so far? Very lackluster, understandably. Mm. I recall vividly we had New Year Eve celebrations and everybody was looking forward to the new year and nobody really had it on the timeline that this is going to drag on for another year. I think I speak on behalf of all industry operators. It's nice to see that we were able to remobilize now. All our outlets are operational except one lot that due to manpower restrictions is still on hold due to vaccination requirements. We are still around. We are still here, still alive and kicking. <laughs> it's good to hear that you guys are back. Which are the outlets that are in operation now? I understand that there were six of them before the lockdown. Correct. So basically, our operation is centered around one road only, which is Changkat Bukit Bintang. And I believe in the operational feasibility of all those outlets being nearby each other. So that gives us a big leverage to move the people that we have on board around wherever it's necessary. We are operating Opium KL, which is the Asian-inspired outlet on the corner, known for exotic Malaysianized cuisine and dining in the dark. Then we have the steakhouse and the whiskey bar adjacent to each other, whereby steaks are currently served at the whiskey bar premise. El Cerdo, our mothership, the Spanish-inspired non-halal entity, that one is open again. And last but not least, our rooftop, Cielo, which is, is a huge blessing because it fulfills some of the customer sentiments that go around, like I feel more comfortable in open air environment. So you're sitting on a rooftop with a fresh breeze that helps and it's clearly visible that that's the outlet that pushes hardest for us right now with a few customers we are able to welcome the open up, fully understanding the sentiment in the market, but it's a matter of survival, to be honest. The benchmark against mid of October, I believe, if everything goes well, we can go out because the situation is under control. So your staff are fully vaccinated as well? I have currently running a threshold of 85% fully vaccinated, well in percentage terms that I should be able to operate at 100% capacity. The standpoint of Werner and myself is that the vaccination is the only way out of this mess. We made sure that our team is fully inoculated as much as we can. And according to that threshold, that's the reason why we could operate and open up as early as we did. 
I want to come back to talking about how you are sustaining six outlets. It has been 18 months. Have you let go of any of your staff? We have not let anyone go. Since the onset of pandemic March last year, I consider it to be a natural selection of predominantly young local people who could sustain their livelihood, admittedly much more comfortably in the comfort of their parents' home. So these were the first ones who naturally decided, okay, under this consideration, I leave the job behind. I think it's this whole COVID scenario, I think it's a pressure test on your company culture and the way you treat your people, they treat you back. And I think honesty is the best policy. You can hope for a lot of things, but what kind of course do we need to take in order to safeguard the operation as much as we can, including all outlets? Of course, that came under drastic cost-cutting measures. We lost over 18 months 30% of our original core team as we stood at still January 2020. The team comprised of 145 people, and we are now down to about 100 This is due to a lot of HQ office personnel that felt like F&B might not be the most promising future outlook at this point in time. So a lot of my marketing execs were chasing people. They decided, hey, thanks for everything, but I want to look for something else. On the outlet side, a couple of people that left us, but we never forced anyone out. We had drastic cost-cutting announcements in terms of payroll in May, June last year, where we wanted to guarantee only two things to everyone. We said, you will all have a roof over your head and shower every day. So that was the time where payroll went down to a standard payment across all rank and file. It sounds a bit socialist, communist, but disregarding what position you took in the company. Everybody pulled on one string and said, this is the money that the company has on hand, and this is what's going to get distributed equally to everyone. From that point onwards, we haven't really lost anyone else. It's 100 people that stuck with us up to today. And it's because you have six entities to take care of, and people recognize you for consistency. So if you remobilize, without people, you are nothing. So the first priority went to the team and their understanding. They go with us and they know that the hardship isn't over. It'll take another two, three months to navigate out from here now. We are feeling blessed that they believe we can weather the storm together, of which I'm sure we will do. That's great to hear. We all know that hospitality industry in Malaysia generally relies so much on foreign staff. And I noticed that you work with similar communities in providing them with employment. Can you tell me how this works in your establishment? For example, your dining in the dark, opium, the staff within these communities? I'm happy to say that we are very inclusive and the nationalities in our group right now, well, obviously German, we have Cuban team member, uh, Spanish team member. We are comprised of everyone, local Indians, local Chinese Malaysians, Malay. And of course, this industry, predominantly Burmese and Filipino workers, which are under permit, which is admittedly still a question mark in our trade to say, okay, when the expiry of the work permit is about to start, what are the renewing options fundamentally on the side of the government in full understanding the local workforce has been ravaged as well and if there was a preference towards seeking employers for local people who need it there is a lot of gray zone in that regard 
whereby as of right now, we are still maintaining an average threshold of 50% locals versus 50% foreign workers as a fact. This might confuse you now because you say, hey, I went to El Cerdo and I see a lot of Filipino and Burmese people, which is correct. The front is predominantly staffed with foreign workers whom we've been working with for years. So some of our team members are with us for as long as 10 years plus. The local workforce is predominantly back of the house and head office. So what does the future hold for some team members of ours whose permit is about to expire? Most of our frontliners will face the scenario mid of next year and what's going to be the company directive is if we can renew them we will we treat our company members pretty much like family up to 100 people that's how we like to run it nobody is a number everybody has a name and yeah there are a lot of question marks with regards to that fundamentally the, the nice thing to see was that there was no discord between team members when it came to salary reduction considerations we had a very strong strong family bond that unanimously everybody agreed on. So there is no preferential treatment towards anyone. And so I think the remaining question will be in how far would the authorities allow us to renew the permits of the people that are not local? We shall see that and uh, weather the storm when it comes. For now, we are safe and confident that we just have to move forward from here on out. And everybody pulls on one string. So how many percent of the staff that you have require renewal of visa? Over the next two years, it will be pretty much split in half-half. So we talk about 25 people next year and 25 people after that. So in that context, again, honesty is the best policy. If we are not allowed to renew, then we are obviously left with no choice but to take uh, deeper considerations and I'd like to share something which I feel is important for people to understand. When we talk about the Burmese community in the country, of course a lot of United Nations refugees and if you are to look into the current situation, political situation in their home country, it's on top of COVID-19 and everything else that have regrettably a military regime that is in power again. A young resistance is apparently forming underground, willing to go against this regime with uh, weapons in hand and underground secret trainings. I mean, these are real facts. So I believe that the government should have compassion to consider whether they would want to send those people back home at this point in time, which in my opinion is admittedly borderlining a crime against humanity, to be honest. You don't want to send anyone back to the battlegrounds of Myanmar right now. And so there are considerations that UN refugees are not supposed to hold any job if they are not fully permitted, but you want to take care of those people out of humanitarian considerations. And a lot of my Burmese staff became friends. I mean, I worked with some of them for as long as 10 years. We will fight for those people to stay with us. They're not just employees. They became part of the family. Let's hope for the best. Thank you. The industry fundamentally has always been built in Kuala Lumpur on foreign workforce that came to some benefit as well as disadvantages. The, the traditional hawker stall in, in, in Penang who introduces the, the, the foreign worker to cook the chakutia or people are not really convinced that that's the right thing to do. On the other hand, I'm a German and we have a bit of nasty history, which was way before my time, but it was Italian people who helped Germany to rebuild after the Second World 
World War. So I think we should maintain a more open mind and viewpoint on foreign workforce that is an absolute necessity in certain industry sectors. You cannot just disregard those people on which you build quite a big chunk of the economy of what it is today. But I do consider Malaysia still moderate in that regard. The consideration of saying locals first is something that's totally understood, but hopefully there'll be a middle path of saying like, what would be a quota or what considerations can we maintain our foreign workforce? We take it when, when we get there. I, I have a little time left to think about it. <laughs> It obviously not only affects the Burmese and other foreign workers in the service industry, it also affects yourself. We can't call you foreign workers. <laughs> we categorize as an expat. I think it's discriminatory yeah. that they award me that the accolade of experts versus non-white people are considered immigrants and foreign workers. <laughs> I've been living in Malaysia for 15 years. I mm. consider myself as an adopted Malaysian by now already. Aww. So... <laughs> so recently, government has changed some policies to foreigners like yourself or investors who treat Malaysia as a second home. How is the recent change of policy affect you and your business? The announcement of the new terms of Malaysia My Second Home program created a huge uproar because the base requirements of money that you have to invest increased by up to 600%, which seems to be very out of line, considered the fact that the 21 billion was invested by this program over the last 10 years. And I believe that foreign direct investment is something the country would have to look at quite seriously as we understand that the coffers are empty. <laughs> and to put much more restricting measures on top of it, for us in general, it's a drawback because the expert community is admittedly a, a big part of our business since we are trying to create an authentic European experience you have seen in the area where we are operating in Chankar Bukit being adjacent to Bukit Ceylon and uh, a big expert enclave of which a lot of people have left the country over the last one and a half years. We foresee that until 2023, this market will not return. I also cautiously optimistic that perhaps by mid to end of next year, a certain tourism market can open up again, a bilateral agreement with Singapore or between countries that have agreed on their vaccination policy and travel policy. But this is all still in the clouds. So not a market segment we can rely on. We don't rely on experts. We cannot rely on tourists. And in that regard, the revenue projection is immediately cut for us as a matter of by close to 40% that we will not get back up the next two years. The agenda moving forward for us is very clear that we hope that the local community recognizes us for the value we produce. And there are a lot of interesting things in the pipeline for next year. For 2021, we are very excited to look at farm-to-table operation which means we're going to raise our own chickens, our own ducks, our own pig-raising farm, our own salads. We are very close on collaborating with a few partners in that regard so that our focus and strategy moving forward from here on out is make people feel better about what they have on the plate. And I think that resonates also with the local market. It's something that out of environmental reasons has its fair share of consideration where they come from. You want to know where the things on your plate come from, right? And what they eat, because if they eat junk, you'll be eating junk through them. So is this farming thing going to be your own farm or is it collaboration with local farmers? How does that work? 
admittedly, if I step into some boots and try to raise a chicken, I will probably fail <laughs> terribly. So, of course, we will collaborate with local people who are much better at what they do than what we could possibly establish ourselves. However, that is the core consideration to say who could accommodate preferences of what we could produce. I give you a simple example. Biologist has found out that the chicken cannot detect spiciness. So for that reason, experiment was conducted of mixing some chili under chicken feet and the chicky was happily eating it. And when it came to the slaughter, God bless the poor chicky, but there was a taste test done and it influenced the meat really, really nicely. What's very important is what are the standards of raising livestock and what is the feed that you give them? We have pretty clear ideas of how we would like to navigate this to make it our proprietary product the way we would like to have it on hand when we prepare it. I'm looking forward. I think it's going to happen in 2022. Hopefully by end of October, we can visit our farmers finally to solidify and make this idea more of a reality. This is not the first time I hear about you pivoting the business and everything surrounds the quality of consumption, the food that you're putting onto the table. Last time you did a food delivery that you fast freeze your food. Tell me a little bit about that. The fast freezing, Kim, to be frank with you, was not embraced the way we hoped for. To recap this, of course, we pivoted due to lockdown consideration into delivery and takeaway. Like most of our industry colleagues, we place ourselves on the map as upper middle. We would never define ourselves as fine dining. It's not what we are, but we try to deliver consistently high value. And if you then have to pivot this food that you create in the restaurant towards delivery, it comes with a lot of considerations because the price you pay when you visit us is obviously a package deal, understandably so. The quality that you get freshly cooked on a plate in the restaurant versus it has been traveling for 45 minutes is obviously something that we had to be very careful about. And then on top of that, if I then deliver in along the margins, so say grab food or food panda, our price point is ambitious. So you order from our delivery portal and it'll set you back for two people by around about 150 ringgit. So you think twice if you can have something similar for maybe less than half. So how do we justify after almost a year of operating the platform? A lot of regulars say for the standard that you produce even as a takeaway, it's as close as 90% to the original restaurant experience, which for us is a huge success, to be honest, that we even got that far. We have established quite well with the delivery and it's still ongoing, obviously, because a lot of the market won't come out and it has established it's not doing as great as we have anticipated but there is still steady growth so you can see that that platform even though a year old is still growing and we're going to maintain this platform but we are still brick and mortar people who hope the change of scenery after sitting at home for four months would enjoy having a meal in our restaurant with full service again so the delivery will always be part and parcel of our business from here on out but the majority is still like serving people in, in our restaurants. The setup that you guys have in all these six different outlets have all different experiences. I could be having a birthday party at El Cerro and then the next thing I want to go to Opium for a cocktail and then move on to the whiskey bar for a cigar and a good dram to end the night, right? So, you know, you're providing different experiences within that stretch. But then my question is, why just on Chankat? I mean, 
aren't you putting all the eggs in one basket? Isn't that risky? Very valid question, Kim. This was based on Werner's basic philosophy of how to operate restaurants. That we expanded over 15 years, the way it happened was admittedly not a roadmap that was laid out from the start. A lot of it happened in the context of preparation meets opportunity. Um, some people define this as luck. They say luck is preparation meets opportunity. And when El Cerdo opened and operated as the first outlet, after a year or two, a lot of people came and asked us, why don't you go to PJ? Why don't you open a little one in Penang? I think it would work really well. Or why don't you put an entity down Johor? The base idea was that we like to have operational oversight. I was working with a multi-unit outlet chain before, and I got a taste of how challenging it can be to monitor and uphold consistency. So the idea on Werner's part was if we have everything nearby each other, we can control it. If we have a downfall of personnel at any one of the outlets due to whatever unforeseen reason, we can back it up out of the neighborhood immediately within two minutes. And so the reason putting all our eggs in one basket was we believed in the location of Changatubu We were in fact one of the first three that opened up shop there in 2005. Uh, if you recall, Frenji Penny was there. Then there was the Long Bar and another place called Kingfisher Pub. And I think the Green Man was there as well. It was actually a residential area. Prior to that, it was pretty much red light district, but it has always been the center of the city center. And so we said, okay, if we stay in one place, then we have to operate different ideas and different concepts that to some degree could even complement each other. So what are we passionate about? What do we think the market could need? What are our neighbors doing? And so how do we fit into that picture? So from a pure operational perspective, we diversified. There was a lively nightclub on which I spent a lot of sleepless nights called Sverners on Chankat. <laughs> yeah, many people have vivid memories of the shenanigans that happened there. And over the years, Kim, a lot of concepts have changed. We had the luxury of failing. We had a fair share of outlets that we deemed feasible, but the market didn't embrace them. You might recall we had adjacent to the whiskey bar was the wine bar. We had those dispenser machines that work really well in Singapore. You put the bottle of wine into this dispenser machine. It will be hold fresh for up to a week and people can get their 200 ml pour by slotting a member card. And we felt that's a good idea for people to explore wine if they don't want to buy the bottle. It terribly backfired. Apparently there weren't that many wine lovers. So what was the wine bar and the steakhouse became the whiskey bar and the steakhouse. So we pivoted our fair share through market sentiment and see what people respond positively to. And whiskey was right product, right place, right time. It started 10 over years ago with about four bottles on our back shelf, which was all the market had to give at the time. And now the selection is borderlining on 1,000 labels from around the world that have been painstakingly collected by our manager, Andy, a local guy who was Chinese banquet manager who found a passion in whiskey. That was a lucky streak. We were the first ones who brought the glass with the ice ball, which was obscure and intriguing. We served all the whiskeys by the shop, which I think made it more attractive to people who just want to try. We have our loyalty program where you get 10% cash back. You can collect and redeem anywhere you go. So maybe you had a family dinner in a third and then daddy wants a little after meal drink in the whiskey bar and uses loyalty points to get his shot. These are the things that due to the proximity of all outlets in one basket is easier to oversee and gives us operational control because the biggest challenge in this trade after having operated so many years is 
consistency. You come and eat in our place and you come back a month later. Hopefully it's as good as you remember it to be. We have everything opened up there. There are no foreseeable investments. First, we recover from the damage that's been done. <laughs> And then you went on an open Cielo, which was a project from two years ago? About three years by now. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, I lost the sense of time. Three years already. Yeah. Time's running quickly. That is the last project in the group, which came about because Werner himself stays up the hill of Bukit Ceylon. And one day he called me to the window and he said, do you see this property coming up down there in the middle of the Chunkat Crossroad? I said, yeah. He said, should we go on the rooftop there? Sorry, what? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it has a good view. So a lot of what we have done also comes out from the gut. It wasn't a targeted approach, but we were sitting on the windowsill and looking down and saw this high rise coming up and said, hey, maybe they look for a tenant up there. So even two years prior to completion of the building, we started talking to the landlord and uh, they were agreeable. They liked what we had planned. And this was the very first project that I undertook pretty much on my own under the guidance of the previous managing director of the group and um, quite proud of it because it's been embraced as a easy, fresh, breezy rooftop venue in a very high traffic area where when you go up there, you don't feel the hustle and bustle. It's like, you know, lean back, have a nice view, have a drink. And so it worked. It's the closest to what we would consider a European style fine dining, but it's not really. It's like we do exotic fish. We try to grill a decent steak. We are very seafood driven with some unusual things, whether it's turbot or Dover sole that we have on offer at times when season allows for it. Happy to say that the neighborhood embraced that as an alternative. After all, Chankat still an attractive gathering point. It's not all about us. It's about that coherent web. All sort of operators care about what they do. So you have a tie out with Barn 26, a British fish and chip shop, the Italian pizzeria, the Italian. And so it's a conglomerate of what you would consider a bit like Chinatownish in London. You have all those kind of different things. I know that Chankat in the past got its fair share of trashing because it became touristy. But I would like to say that I feel blessed with the neighborhood we have. Every outlet operator on Chunkat takes care of their own business. So it's people who care about what they do. This is where I firmly believe that Chunkat will always have relevance in the ever-expanding market. SMB has exploded last three years with a lot of creativity and a lot of entrepreneurial spirit of people opening everywhere. And that's great. But I think to have Chunkat as a stronghold, as an alternative where you pretty much know what you get, this is what makes us comfortable and also believe in the locations that we have. So if you haven't been to Chunkat in a long time, everybody out there listening, give it a try. If you don't like the hustle and bustle, come to the roof. If you like exotic cocktails, come to Opium and if you just want to have a bit of cheer and fun and happy hour, our neighbors are the experts in that regard. So yeah, 15 years on Chunkat, it's quite a while. And the stretch went through ups and downs and had its fair share of controversy. But now it's pedestrianized on the weekends. Whatever fights and whatever you hear has come down to a minimum. It gives us the confidence to say the proximity to the city center for us right now is a bit of a drawback. 
because people are staying within their own regional hubs of home with a 10 kilometer radius. We are prepared for the long haul game. We know that we will not recover quickly over the next five, six months. To move out of the situation will take us easily about two years and we are prepared for that and we are not willing to let it go. As long as customers come and say, hey, I really enjoyed your food. I think your service is good. We do believe we are on the right track and we believe we can carry it. Yeah, but you have been there for that long and you have so many outlets dotted around on that stretch. Are other establishments as resilient as you guys? Most of our neighborhood managed to hold on to what they have. I believe it's a matter of perspective to say that if you are the operator of a single shop lot, it entails different considerations than you have seven outlets to maintain. So like the saying goes, I quite like the comparison of we are not all sitting in the same boat, but we are sitting in different boats weathering the same storm. On how do you manage this period? I think for F&B, it's basically three cost centers. You have your staff, your rental, and the liabilities towards your supplier network. So it's these three that you need to navigate to the best of your knowledge. We are very blessed with the majority of our landlords being compassionate right now. I can't really talk for the neighborhood, but for ourselves, we concluded that transparency is the best policy. So all our suppliers were approached directly with an offer letter to say, okay, this is how we look at offsetting our liabilities for you. Please continue delivering to us. Our longstanding relations that we have a lot. Every F&B out there understands when I say that beginning of months is when you stock up. You don't want to buy end of month. So the lockdown hit on the 7th of May was a slap in the face because, you know, you just made your fridges full and you try to equip yourself for the month to come. You see, it's a supply chain and it's a network. Say, how much are we able to sacrifice on the payroll? How much are landlord negotiations? And to what degree can we come across installment payments with suppliers who we obviously know money? Every F&B out there understands when I say that beginning of months is when you stock up. You don't want to buy end of month. So the lockdown hit on the 7th of May was a slap in the face because, you know, you just made your fridges full and you try to equip yourself for the month to come. You see, it's a supply chain and it's a network. We always have been a good paymaster to all our stakeholders and it pays off during this point in time. People show leniency and even if it takes a little longer, we go along with it because at the end we are interdependent of each other. You see, we are dependent on the fresh food that and the meat supply and it works the other way around now i understand of people in the market that have not managed to weather the storm up till now a lot of small-scale operators have succumbed and had to lock down with no choice we don't like to say that staff you don't have any other choice i mean you see what happens in america that gets the biggest backlash right now where f&b workers are fleeing the industry because i believe you have to pay people a livable wage and what constitutes a livable wage is quite tangible when you live in the city center. So across the group, we conclude the ones who earn more will take a bigger cut so that we can save the lower ranking people to have a minimum threshold to survive. 
this is how up till now we managed to sustain the last 18 months in collaborative effort and open communication. That's a lot of insight and thank you for sharing all those tips. It's so useful. Hopefully uh, listeners who are running their own business and F&B outlets would learn something from this and pick up a tip or two to apply to their own business. So if anyone wants to find you guys on social media before they come to your restaurant, how do they do that? Are you on Instagram and Facebook? We are represented on Instagram and Facebook with all outlets El Cerdo which is a little bit of a tongue breaker Cielo C-I-E-L-O Opium the whiskey bar you just key it into the Google bar and hopefully we pop up <laughs> but as long as they go to your website all your restaurants are linked from that main website right that is correct you will find us through the web address as well even though i'm not really an seo master and i realize on the it side <laughs> i have to play a lot of catch up but we are visible so if you're keen on exploring us please resort to mr google or facebook or instagram you should be able to find us cool andreas uh, to every guest that come on this show i always have to ask this question if there's any one person that you would like to meet over a drink who would that be and what would you like to talk to him or her about i think i would call alan watts to the table one thing i see is that in general you have a society that's pretty much moving towards totalitarian capitalism what i mean by that is the capitalist system versus the socialist system seems to be something that creates a divide of which we know we are working towards more and more and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer i feel there is a fundamental injustice that is very very difficult to break up jeff bezos who can fly in a rocket to space but isn't able to pay warehouse workers their minimum wage and then they build up a little meditation booth that's the size of an old phone booth where you can go in and cry for yourself for two minutes because of the hardship you face. I think there is a lot of injustice and I believe that I would like to understand from Alan Watts or maybe for that matter even Joe Biden or anyone in governmental hierarchies. How can we place more value on community, on togetherness? I think we all realize right now that we'd be able to live with a little less than what we have. We all had to pull the belt a little tighter make it a life worth willing for the lower income spectrum of the community give in a little i don't think we need more billionaires on the planet i think we need a bit more goodwill in general and so this is the philosophy with which we want to drive our group forward we have now 100 people hopefully soon again more and this is our contribution to society to say the people that we have we want to take care of in a fair manner i like to think that everyone out there would reflect on the fact that what it means to be a happy coexisting community. This is why I would go to philosopher like Alan Watts and maybe people in high-ranking government position to explain to me why this capitalist system cannot be broken up. <laughs> that was too deep right now, Kim, and I, I got to reflect on that. Maybe we do that part one more time. <laughs> it's always a pleasure talking to you, Andreas. Hopefully <laughs> next time it's over a drink. That was Andreas Koenig the general manager of Rhine River, sharing with us how Vernis Group managed their restaurants and bars in Kuala Lumpur city centre during the pandemic. If you visit any of the six outlets in Changkat Bukipintang, you may bump into Andreas. Make sure to say hi. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My name is Kim Chung and this is First Mag Over a Drink. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for our latest episodes you can find all the links in the show notes. I would really appreciate if you can leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast and recommend it to your friends. See you next time.